This sounds like it's going to be a really funny podcast. Oh my. I have so many questions for you too. Good. I'm glad. Hopefully I have answers. You won't. It's just going to be really awkward. Oh, good. <laughs> Great. Hey, I'm Allison Hare, and welcome to Little Left of Center, the podcast that interviews culture changers that are reshaping our world and breaking new ground. Did you know that 40 million adults suffer from anxiety and depression in the U.S.? That's almost 20% of the population. It is a lot, and it's on the rise. And my guest today is Megan Armstrong. And if you live in Atlanta, you probably know her name well. She has been a staple on the fitness and wellness scene for years, and people love her. In just a few short months ago, she came forward and started a podcast called Six Feet Above and revealed that she has spent 16 years of her life wishing she was six feet below. And her first season came out. She revealed her own struggles with bipolar disorder, bulimia, depression, anxiety, and her podcast spread like wildfire. She has touched on a nerve and has shared people's stories of struggle and success. So today is the story of bouncing back. And it's not always easy. It's not always pretty, but it's always real. And I loved her message of compassion, of understanding, and how important it is to feel seen and heard. I do want to mention that if you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, there is someone available to you 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255. And if this is your first time listening to this show, welcome. My hope is you'll leave inspired enough to take action in your own life and be your own culture changer. And if you have listened before, I'm so glad you came back and hope you'll continue sharing these episodes. You can always text me your feedback and ideas at 470-242-6311. I hope you will rate, review, subscribe, and most of all, pass these episodes along. Now to my chat with Megan Armstrong. You are the host of Six Feet Above podcast, which was released in the last year. When October. October. God, that was quick. Yeah, it's like three months ago, yeah. Yeah, and you have completed your first season. Yep. You're in the process of season two, yep. courtesy of Press Play Podcast, yep. or with yep. some assistance. Absolutely. Um, some guidance. A lot of it. assistance. <laughs> Megan, you are somebody that is really, really well-known in Atlanta as a fitness expert. So you're the director of, of Stat Wellness. And, director of Movement, yep. And if you guys have been listening to me, yeah. you'll know that we have interviewed Kristen Oja, the founder of Stat Wellness. Um, so feel free to rewind after you finish this interview. But, <laughs> but you've been a fitness instructor. You're really well known. You you are a Legree fitness trainer, spin, all kinds of, of different things. So I think that the concept of six feet above is that you spent 16 of your life wanting to be six feet under. Mm -hmm. And to come out with that when you live in a fitness world, mm. a wellness world that on the surface is all about image. Mm -hmm. It's all about looking good. Yep. And I know when I'm in a, a fitness class and I look at the fitness trainer and I, my mind goes to a place where this fitness trainer has it all. They yeah. look great. They feel great. They're confident. They probably have their health and their nutrition together. And I'm just here, just trying to, <laughs> just trying to get a piece of it. So I just imagine that I'm that person right. for the hour or whatever that I'm 
and I'm right, there right. and kind of borrow that confidence from there. So I'm curious to get your perspective on being in the wellness world and having true wellness and having wellness aesthetics and then coming yeah. out with your story of 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 wanting to die right and spending so much time not knowing how to dig yourself out of it. So if you wouldn't mind rewinding a little bit. Yeah. And sharing a bit of your story, but I'm I'm curious to get how do you find your positioning in the wellness world that is one of health and one that mm-hmm. is is true health from within, but not just what you put on Instagram? So when I was 27, I was living in LA. I had already been there for three years. I moved when I was 24. And I remember literally hitting my goal weight. I had this number that I wanted to hit on the scale. And I had a photo shoot the next day. And I remember just hitting that number and being like, oh my God, I did it. Like so excited that I did it. And um, the next day was a photo shoot and I felt great for that day. And then I went back to my old habits of bulimia. And in order to hit that goal weight, I was doing all of these very unhealthy things and then going home and feeling very terrible about myself. I remember thinking like my physical body meant nothing because I was so fucked up in my head. And no matter what the scale said or what my pant size said, like I'm, I'm six feet tall, so I was trying to always squeeze in size fours like consistently and like I'm a bigger human being. Um, no matter what I looked like physically, if my mental health wasn't there, it didn't matter. I wasn't a happy human being. Like it didn't fulfill anything more than like that day and that moment. It didn't make me a better instructor. It didn't make me, you know, a better partner if I was dating somebody. It didn't make me better at anything. It just made me more, it actually made it 10 times worse because it was an obsession and it was so unhealthy and I knew that I couldn't keep that up forever. How did you discern the difference between I am full of shit Mm -hmm. and I need to change? Like at what moment did you feel this was empty Oh, I think it was probably a couple years after that. That's when I was 27, I I realized it hit me that it was all very um, superficial, but it took me a couple years to really take responsibility and say, I'm empty, not because the world isn't fulfilling me because I'm not fulfilling myself. And a lot of times I would place blame on the outside world. I don't have a boyfriend. I don't have a house. I'm not where I should be in my career. I don't have this. I don't have that. And it's like, you can play the blame game all you want. I always say that depression is a very selfish thing. And that sounds really harsh. But when you think about it, and unless you've actually been depressed, you may not understand. But when you are severely depressed, the only person you think about is yourself. You think about how bad your life sucks, about you know how great everyone else has it, about how you don't look a certain way, about how you don't fit in, about how this, this, and this, and it's all very, it's very selfish. And I had to realize that I could blame everybody else all I wanted, but that didn't change anything. Like that didn't make me any happier. So I could either do that for the rest of my life and be miserable and be angry. Um, I could kill myself, which I had decided I wouldn't do because I'm an only child and I had this huge sense of guilt. If I were to take my own life and my parents would be left, it would completely crush them. Or my third option was 
I need to do something about this. So from like 29 to about 31, 32, my early 30s, I worked really, really, really hard at mentally changing my habits. So, you know. What gave you the motivation to do that? What gave you the the strength? Because it's really fucking hard. To find that strength. Yeah, Yeah, especially when your body is wired a different way. I always say that people are really born with like, the plus side of the battery or the minus side Mm -hmm. of the battery. And sometimes if people have the minus side of the battery, they have to work extra hard to to rewire their selves. Where where do you fall on that? So and that's that's exactly it. My habits were created from the time I was probably a child. You know, these negative thoughts, these negative habits, they just kept building and building and building. And finally, like, were 29. they you though? Were they, were they who you were? Do you feel th- like it was circumstantial or? I think there were some things that I went through growing up. Um, I think being an only child, you know, I look back and I think that's a huge part of it. I would, uh, and, and my mom, you know, went through years of, of fertility treatments. And I always thought, well, they're trying so hard to have another kid. Like, I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Right. When in reality, looking back, it's like, and I remember them saying this, but it it didn't click because I'm, you know, eight years old or whatever. But I remember them saying, we love you so much. We want more of you. Right. But my brain would always go to the negative side. And then I was a really, really good swimmer. And even when I hit like 13, I was one of the first people in this, the nation to actually qualify for YMCA Nationals at 13 years old. And I remember my swim coach saying to me, well, you'd be a lot faster if you had less to move through the water. So at 13, being told that you need to lose weight, it was like, again, I'm not good enough. So I always had this mentality of I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. Even though I was a very good swimmer, I was successful in school, I was in the top 10% of my class, like all of those things I couldn't look at as a positive. I looked at all the negatives instead. And I think it was that time in my late 20s when I was so fed up with how miserable I was. Like I I, I hated myself. I hated being with myself every day, like trapped in my brain. And I knew that if I didn't do something, I would have to live that way forever. And I didn't want to live that way forever. And I think... It was very much, I I almost think it's coming from like an athletic background or something that's like a goal that you want that drove me to make those changes. It was the fact that I was just so fed up with myself as a person that I had to do something. And I did a lot of like, you know, I I read a lot of self-help books and this was back in, obviously I was living in LA, but back when The Secret kind of made its re-debut. I remember. Debut, (laughs) debut, if I could speak. Debut. Debut. And I would start listening to that. I would listen to that in the car, just like, even like subconsciously, I think it got into my brain. And I would also get really annoyed because it's very much like, think about what you want and it will happen. Think about what you want and you create it. And it's like, no, you actually have to... Do something. Steps. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. So what I started to do, and I use this example because it's really simple and it's tangible for people that don't understand. I would get very, very bad road rage, um, which in LA it's like all day long. Yeah. You know, and I would walk in with that anger from the car to work. And I would carry with that, carry me, you know, that would carry me through the day and with clients. And I remember making a conscious decision. This doesn't fucking matter me getting upset in the car, like three hours from now, it's not going to make a difference. So 
okay, I can get upset for a second and I'm going to leave it in the car. I'm not going to take this with me to work. So just changing my mentality and practicing that literally every day, because I was also a private swim trainer. So I was driving, you name it, I've been to their house in LA. Um, I was a private swim coach and a uh, lifeguard. So I was going to these people's houses and in the car, I mean, I probably spent five hours in the car daily. Um, So between going to their houses and then going to Equinox to work at the gym, I was practicing a lot of these things just sitting in the car and and really focusing on when I got a negative thought in my head to feel the emotion and not judge myself and then turn that around. Think of something different. Um, You know, I was single. I've been single for a very long time and it used to really bother me and I would get really upset about it. Um, and then really down on myself. And I had to practice that same thing with those thoughts. It's like, oh, poor you, poor you, you're single, you're 29. Da, da, da. It's like, okay, well, what are you going to do about what can I do about it today? And, and, you know, how can I, and looking back, I know exactly why I was single, because I was in such a negative space, I'm not going to attract anybody to that. Right. So I had to take responsibility for that, too. Like, well, it's kind of your fault that you're you are this way and you're not going to attract people because you are in such a negative space. So until you change that space, people are not going to be attracted to you. So I spent most of my thirties focusing on myself and it is not an overnight success story. I mean, it took 16 years for these horrible habits to build and kind of escalate And it's taken however many years to kind of undo those habits. And it's something that I practice every day. I I would compare it to like an alcoholic. Um, You know, you can, we can force alcoholics into, uh, you know, um, oh my God, what's the term I'm thinking of? AA? When you do an intervention, right? But until they decide that they want to make that change and actually do it, they're they're not going to change. We can force them, but at some point they have to make that decision on their own. So for me, it is, and then you have to practice it every day, right? Someone in AA and coming out of it, like they're always an alcoholic. I feel like I will always have a depressive gene. It's always going to be there. So I have to work a little bit harder when things get rough in my life. But I have the practice, I have the skills, I have the habits that I've created myself and what work for me because I think everyone has different things that work for them. But I know what works for me. So I use and practice those especially when times get rough. Um, And that's something that's kind of helped me over the past several years and just staying true to who I am and realizing and recognizing when I'm going back to the old Megan. I was wondering, do do you get fearful of sliding back? Yes. And do you? Yes. Do you have yes those suicidal thoughts? Um, I won't say suicidal thoughts. I will have times when I'm like, it would be a lot easier if I wasn't here, mm. which I think probably a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the word suicide, people are like, oh, that's really, I'm like, well, sometimes it is easier to just be like, I'd love to tap out and not have to deal with what's going on. I had um, some things happen to me last year. And there were moments, there was one in particular, um, I was driving home on 400 after a a night out with some girlfriends and I got into the poor me headspace. And I remember thinking like, I just wish a semi would 
swipe me out right now. Mm. Just take me out of here. And I got home and I cried for a couple hours on the floor with my dog. And then I said to myself, literally, you've worked so fucking hard to not go down this road. Get yourself up, go to sleep, sleep in tomorrow. I turned off my phone. Um, this is the point in my life when I didn't have a job. And I gave myself that grace to feel sorry for myself until 12 o'clock the next day. And then I forced myself to get up to either go get coffee or go work out. And that's where for me, fitness comes in, not because I want to look a certain way, but because it's gotten me out of so many uh, tragic mental thoughts. If I go and surround myself with people in an athletic type of space, that's what helps me. Or if I go for a walk in the sunshine, there, there are very specific things that I force myself to do so that I don't go down that spiral. I think what's interesting about that is um, <clears throat> I was thinking about what is your North Star and that mm-hmm. is the wellness side of things or, or be surrounding yourself in fitness. And one thing that keeps coming up uh, for me is you're, ta- you're talking through your story is that people are no longer taught how to cope. Right. And when something goes wrong, let's get drunk. Right. Let's get fucked up. Yeah. You know, let's take a pill, yeah. you know, forget about it fuck it, yeah. shop it, yeah. you know, whatever anxious, it is. anxious, okay, yes. well, here's a prescription for it. Like a- Exactly right. And I'm curious, you know, when I was listening to your story on your podcast, which was uh, just so beautifully oh, told. And you. I'm so grateful that you're sharing your story with, with our audience here too. But you had mentioned that you've been diagnosed with severe depression and bipolar and, of course, put on medications. Yeah. And that you have somehow weaned yourself off yeah. of medication. So for me, that tells me that you have taken an active, pl- active place in your own health, yes, and coping and facing things head on. Yeah, which I think is what people are no longer trained to do. Right, it's really fucking hard. Yeah, and probably very dangerous for somebody that is clinically diagnosed as all of these things. Can totally. You, can you walk through yeah. what that's been like and how the moment that you said, I'm not going to take this anymore and yeah. feel okay? Yeah. So I, at 16, I was put on medication right away. I guess my mom tells me this. I don't remember it, but uh, whoever I was seeing, a psychologist or psychiatrist, that they get jumbled. <laughs> I've seen so many doctors. Um they came to my parents and they're like, your daughter's suicidal. And my parents were in denial. They're like, what are you what talking about? What happened at 16? Um, there was a, a kind of a buildup of several things. My swimming career, I use that quotes because I was 16, um, started to go downhill. I wasn't as fast as I used to be. I um, had a bad breakup, this boy that I thought was the love of my life and you know, whatever, he broke up with me and um, just kind of, spiraled. And I was also um, anorexic at that point, 16, 17. I really... Do you think it was a control thing? Possibly. I think... I. You know what I honestly, looking back, I think it is, is growing up, I used to be called the Jolly Green Giant. I'm, you know, I'm tall. Affectionately or not affectionately? Not affectionately. Um, I was a swimmer. I was very flat chested. I was very tall. I was... I'm not genetically slim, I'm bigger boned. And I think the 
eating disorders have for sure stemmed from that. Like I don't fit in with regular girls. I just don't. Um, and then I moved to the South and I'm like, wow, I definitely don't fit in down here. That's a whole nother story. You're but, at least blonde. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But for me, you know, growing in upstate New York, this is a very small, uh, there's not a lot of diversity. And especially being in a swimsuit my entire life, it probably was a control thing because I felt so out of control with my swimming career and a boyfriend that broke up with me that, well, I guess if I just don't eat, maybe I could be a better swimmer and faster. And I look back at a picture that's still hanging on my wall in my in my house at home. And I'm like, wow, I was so, so thin and so unhealthy, but I didn't realize it at the time, obviously. I definitely think it's it's a control thing. And, you know, now I know that you know, I look at food as, as fuel and change my mentality around that. There are times when I will overeat and I do get really upset with myself, but I make sure that I don't go down the steps that I used to do to take care of that just because I don't want to go back to those habits. I know that starts a spiral. So what was your original question? Oh, oh. The, the medication. <laughs> yes. So, okay. So at 16, now they, I'm thinking about grace, right? You know, giving yourself <laughs> yeah, grace, giving but grace. yes, the medication, um, they, put me on medication right away. They kind of acknowledged that I was not in a good place. And I don't think my parents knew how bad it was. They definitely didn't know. For 16 years, I was on from 16 to about 31. So 16, 15, 16 years, all sorts of different medications, different doses. I think one of the hardest parts about depression or bipolar or any sort of mental illness is that you can't take blood and be like, this is what you have. And this is how we treat it. Like, it's very abstract. Mm. It's like, well, we think this is going on. And then you try a medication and you have to be on it for 30 days to see if it's working. And then if it's not working, they change the medication or they up the dose. Like, it's just such a, a it's a trial and error thing, which is the most discouraging like a lab rat too, Yeah, you know, I remember telling my mom, I'm like, I wish I just had a disease that they could just fix, right. you know, that would be a lot easier than this. So my depression morphed into bipolar in college. And I think it probably has a lot to do with like drugs and alcohol. I was obviously, you know, 2021, 20, and it kind of morphed into this very high highs and very low lows. And I was doing things that were very uncharacteristic, uncharacteristic of me. Uh, I broke into a, a ex-boyfriend's house when I was like in, in a senior in college and just going off the wall. I was very angry. And then I'd be great for like a couple of days. It was very up and down. So then they ended up putting me on a mood stabilizer, which is actually used for seizures. So trying to stabilize you and an antidepressant on top of that. So from the time I was like 22 or 23, maybe all the way up until I was about 31, I was on those same medications. What do you tell yourself when you're on all these things? Do you feel like I'm crazy? Yeah. Or do you 100%. feel like you're watching a movie of this doesn't feel like me, but I have all these feelings? So kind of two different things. I would always feel crazy. Mm. I would always kind of think that about myself. And my mom, she's so- What does that feel like? Do you feel like I am damaged? Yeah, you, yeah, you absolutely feel like- the one thing that you could be in control of are your your thoughts and your happiness. I, I felt like I had no control. Mm. And my I remember my mom explaining it to me like, okay, if you had diabetes, you would have to take this, you'd have the insulin, da, 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 da. We are looking at your depression and your bipolar 
exactly like that. Like this is just your genetic makeup. Something has triggered you. And I love that they're doing all this research on genetics and the trigger factors Mm -hmm. of certain people growing up. And it does run in my family. But when she said it to me that way, I kind of was like, okay, I'll give in. I'll, I'll be okay with the medication. But you, of course, feel like I'm not a normal human being unless I'm taking this medication. Mm-hmm. And I would say if you need it, stay on it for your entire life. But for me, I got to a point in my late 20s when I was doing the work and then the early 30s when I was really focusing on myself when I thought... I don't want to be dependent on these for the rest of my life because I felt like I was in a better place than I was at 22 or 23 and 24. And I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. A, you grow up, you're maturing, you're becoming um, more of a, for me, I was becoming someone that was really looking at myself internally versus my early 20s. Like no one is looking at themselves in their early 20s. They're just partying and going out and getting drunk. So I think it was a combination of things that, progressed and really made it made it a goal of mine to see how it would be to go off of them. So I kind of weaned myself off. I did not tell my mother. I didn't tell her until I was completely off. Were you scared? I was terrified because my mom would have flipped out and been like, she probably would have gotten on a plane and flown down here. Mm-hmm. Um, because her mind goes back to me as a 20-year-old and how awful I was back then. And I had to literally sit her down. I made the phone call and I'm like, mom, I need you to understand I'm in a much better place. And I think I can do this. I think I'm going to be okay. And if not, I remember I got a refill just in case. And I've not gone back to them at all. Wow. So how did you put some systems in place to help you, some tools that can help you as you started maybe to slide or feel like, oh shit, I'm starting to lose control here. Yeah, I think for me, I know, and it's funny when you say put tools in place because my brain would go to confiding in a loved one or someone like that. I didn't, I don't, no one at the time knew that I was doing this because I go back to being an only child and kind of doing things on my own mm-hmm. and just getting it done. Like I never had the sister to confide, so confide in or, or the brother. Yeah. Like I, for me, I always just figured it out. It's just like when I moved cross country from Boston to LA with no job, LA to Atlanta, like I've just figured everything out my entire life. Um, so the systems for me were like the checks, the check marks, like, um, how am I feeling at the end of the day? And, and and I'll be really honest, I was still struggling with an eating disorder at that time. But I was also doing a lot of work on myself then too. And this whole time in LA, I was also seeing, you know, a counselor too. Did LA fuck you up too? That there, I mean, it is so perfect. (laughs) These, you know, like, my goodness. It's so perfect. Megan, you're putting yourself in the worst situation. The worst city in the world. (laughs) It's so imperfectly perfect. I don't want to say like LA fucked me up because I probably would have been that way if I stayed in Homer, New York. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was a great place for me to be, but I also know if I had stayed closer to my parents, I probably would have resented them and that would have made me an angry human being. I almost think I needed to go LA to LA to experience all these things, to have all these horrible things happen to me, but they happen for me. And honestly, I think that's my story. 
me getting through my late teens and my entire 20s and coming out the other side alive, I wouldn't have anything to sit here and talk about if I hadn't gone and done that. And yeah, um, thank you. Because this would have been a boring episode otherwise. <laughs> so I was, and this is just to paint a picture. I was that girl in LA, six foot blonde in a red lifeguard bathing suit on the beach. Like I was that girl minus the boobs. Sounds like Pamela. Yeah, I didn't have Pamela the boobs. I didn't have the boobs, still don't. But you know, it it, it looked that way from the outside. Mm-hmm. But again, going home alone, there were times when I had roommates and there were times that I lived alone. You know, you never know what's going on behind closed doors. I would, I've worked for the richest A-listers you could ever imagine. I'm going to ask you as soon as we stop <laughs> recording. <laughs> I've never signed an NDA, so it's totally fine. No, I, I, but you would see these people and you would see the insides of their homes. And again, like no one is perfect. Any hoarders? No, no, I don't remember <laughs> any hoarders. Definitely not. But just knowing like, This is what I would say. I wish I had someone like me when I was going through all of this that was doing a podcast, that was doing a YouTube show, that was putting herself out there to be like, guess what? You are not alone. And guess what? You're going to be okay. And I think that's what I want to do for other people. Tell me about Six Feet Above podcast. So Six Feet Above was something that I'd been thinking about for a good two years. And it was because I started to actually open. It's so funny the way it happened. It was like this Instagram challenge where one of my trainers tagged me about five things that we don't know about you. And so, you know, I posted five things that people didn't know about me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to put number five as um, my depression and bipolar history. And the amount of feedback I got from that was so big and just the outpouring of love and the outpouring of people that were like, oh my God, me too, me too, me too. Mm. People that I had looked at and thought, well, they're perfect. They got mm-hmm, it all together. They mm-hmm. got the, you know, they're married and they're da, da, da. And this, at this point I was living in Atlanta. I was like, holy, holy shit. There's a, uh, for lack of better use, there's a market. There's a market for this because these people think I have it all together because I'm in fitness and I'm doing the thing and I'm a confident person in the in the studio. But if they only knew what I had gone through and what I had been to get here, holy shit, I wish I had that. Mm. So that's kind of when my wheel started turning. And for two years, I had thought about it. I'm like, what's the easiest way to kind of like share this? Like, yeah, you can do Instagram and that's great. But it's kind of when podcasting was first starting a couple of years ago and now really blowing up. And um, my ex-boyfriend, the one that I broke into his house. Dan? Or, yeah, Dan. <laughs> Dan, everyone knows Dan. I'm, I'm in mid-Dan mid, mid Dan story. Yeah. So Dan and I dated uh, in college, but he's been a best friend since I was like eight. We dated in college and he didn't understand. He knew that I was struggling, but he didn't get it because he's never, unless you've really been depressed or have been, very close with someone, it's hard to understand. Just like any sort of illness, it's really Mm. hard to understand what that's like until you're in it. So for him, he didn't really know how to support me. And uh, granted, we're what, 20, 21, 22. Mm -hmm. So So last November, November of 2018, his dad at 64 years old, I think, 63, um, took his own life. And I remember getting the message uh, my uncle actually told me on Facebook. And I was like, what? Uh, you know, so many thoughts go through your head. And obviously, I reached out to Dan. Therefore, he was living in Hawaii, or he still lived in Hawaii at the time. But 
reached out to him and obviously was like, if anyone gets this, I get it. So when you're ready to talk, you let me know. And we have had several conversations since. And it was him that was a catalyst to six feet above. He was like, Meg, I get it now. I didn't get it when you were 20, 21, but like, I think I'm understanding now, especially after seeing my dad go through it. And he's the one who literally said, like, you have got to share your story. You've got to tell people how you went from wanting to not wake up every morning to waking up and actually being successful and being happy and being inspirational and all these things that I'm still working on and trying to do. He's like, you've got to share that. So (laughs) the way it really happened after that, so that was at the end of 2018, early 2019, when we had these conversations. All last year, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it. I was in a job that was, for me, toxic, and I was becoming part of the toxicity, and I was kind of going back to my old habits and my old space, and I had so much anxiety because I knew I had to get out of it, but I it was full-time. I had benefits. I had health insurance. I had all the things, and you cannot get that in fitness. It's mm. really difficult to get that in fitness, so I was terrified to walk away. So what happened was last July, we were asked to sign new employment agreements, and it was kind of the final straw when I said, this place is not serving me. I'm, I'm not going to sign this, and uh, I was let go. So I was fired from a company that I created, helped create and created the workout and trained every single trainer that that worked for the company. And it's been only six months, but that's when I was like, I have more time on my hands. I've saved up some money. And the week before I was let go, I had this kid reach out to me to ask uh, to interview me about social conscious capitalism. Hmm. I was like, what the fuck is conscious capitalism? (laughs) So looking it up, I'm like, oh, okay. I I understand. Like he, you know, he thinks I run this business and I own it and whatever. And I couldn't tell him that I was most likely on my way out because I knew this is the way it was going. But he was brought into my life, I honestly believe, because he also produced podcasts. And I told him that I had an idea. And the day that I got fired, the day after I got fired, I called them and I said, I'm still willing to do your interview, but I have been thinking about this for a long time. And I think it was God's way of pushing me away from that job to go start the podcast. And it still took another couple of months to really nail down exactly how I wanted to do it. But I I knew that, and I didn't have any guests lined up. I just kind of trusted. I have a really good supportive circle and, uh, group that trust me in the fitness industry. And I know that a lot of these people have been through things themselves. So my very first guest was Sheldon Spears or Sheldon Beers, who is a, um, one of the top soul cycle instructors in the country. And he works in the Atlanta soul cycle. And, uh, he agreed to be on my podcast and it was like talking to him. I was, I was like, it was like this weight had lifted off my shoulders I was like, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. This is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Because yes, I've shared, you know, my story and and it, but it's not about just my story. It's about your story and his story. And everyone has a fucking story. Like no one's had a perfect life. We've all been through mm-hmm. something and we've all dealt with it differently. So if we can start talking about it and sharing what works for you and what works for you and what works works for that person 
maybe our younger generation will listen to these stories and be like, oh my God, I'm going through this right now. And maybe they might take something that works for Sheldon and something that works for Lillian and something that works for Dan and piece that together and it will help them. And I'm not saying to not take the medication and stop seeing your doctors and all that. That is absolutely necessary. I think it got me through my 20s. I wouldn't be here without it. But I do think there's something to be said about actually hearing from people that have been through it, maybe are still going through it and have worked on themselves and have done the work and hearing about what works for them that is more beneficial than some of the other stuff that we just prescribe and push. And if we can also teach people, it's the one thing they don't teach you in school, right? We, we learn math and we learn about the War of 1812 and all this bullshit that really doesn't matter, but we don't teach our kids how to deal with anxiety or how to handle um, you know, a, another kid who's picking on you or whatever. Like, We don't teach them how to actually be emotional and allow them to be emotional and then how to work through that. Mm-hmm. You know, especially our boys, like, man up, don't be a pussy, don't be a but- bitch. And it's like, well, but that's okay. Like, it's okay if a little boy is sad because you keep pushing those emotions down. Guess what? They're going to turn 65 and they're going to tap out of this world because they've had 65 years of emotions that they couldn't handle and now don't want to deal with. And they have no outlet. So if we're teaching our kids how to how to actually handle it, and there is an outlet for this, and there are people very much like you and me going through this, like maybe we could make a difference in the next generation who is on more medication mm-hmm. and dealing with more anxiety and depression than than any generation has yet. You know how strongly I feel about this. Yeah, I, I made yeah. I forced you to watch the mask it's you live so in. So good. <laughs> it's so which is so crazy because. When you told me about the, the the mask we live in, or the mask, the mask you live the in, mask yeah. you live in, the documentary, I had literally said the same exact thing to you, and you're like, "That's what they say on this documentary. You need to go watch it." Mm-hmm. So, which was just like reassuring for me that I wasn't like thinking outside of the box. You know, it it's such a a real and valid thing. And then I went and watched the one about women, mm-hmm. misrepresentation, Mis- yeah. misrepresentation, which was so interesting because and this is one thing I hadn't thought about when we when we're saying to our kids, especially like boy athletes, like don't be a bitch. Okay, now they're associating a bitch with a woman and that is so degrading to women and it puts us secondary, you know? And it's like, so now they have this hierarchy that they're automatically above us and they're learning this at eight years old. Like, what are we teaching our next generation? You know, it's, 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 it's actually terrifying. And people talk about kids all the time. Like, yes, I'm getting older. And it's like, gosh, I I hope that when I do bring a child into the world, I can help them deal with some of the stuff because it is terrifying what they have to go through. It's really fucking hard. I'll tell you, (laughs) you know, my son, I have a seven-year-old son who's like super sensitive and quiet and shy. And we had an episode this past weekend and we watched The Mask You Live In. And I remember listening very, very closely to Brene Brown. Yes. That when, you know, Brene Brown has really, really changed the culture in terms of allowing for vulnerability that I don't know if your podcast would have been received as well without Brene Brown paving the Mm. way first and opening and introducing the conversation of vulnerability and that that documentary the mask you live in changed how we raise our son and so when my son is freaking out or having a meltdown 
it's it takes all of my might not to say, well, that kid is a loser, you right, know, or, right. or you'll grow or you'll whatever. Right. My, my son is much smaller. And he, or it's just a phase. Like, yeah. No, this isn't and so a phase. I have to shut up and just say, yeah. okay, yeah, that really sucks. Yeah. And just be okay with that and not try and fix it. And my son this weekend, he had uh, my, my husband fix chili for us. My son was freaking out. He's like, I don't want to taste it. I don't want to taste it. And he starts to have a full-blown panic attack. He says, mommy, he's holding his throat. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And I'm like, okay, I've got to... I've got to get my shit together because I'm pissed at him at this right. point because we're like, you know, we make all this food, but we right. can't, you've got to eat. And I know he likes tomatoes. He likes ground beef. He likes whatever's in there. And I had to like take him outside and just hold his face in my hands and just say, okay, just breathe, just breathe, just breathe. And anytime you feel like you can't control or that that you can't breathe, just breathe slowly. Just think about my face. Think about my voice. And he started to calm down and then he ate, Mm. you know, like, and he was perfectly fine. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah. And I I think about, is my son, does he suffer from anxiety Mm -hmm. or is it cultural? Right. When I was growing up, we didn't have you know, if we were pissed at our parents, we would say, well, I'm going to run away from home. Right. <laughs> now they don't say that. Right. Kids say, I'm going to kill myself. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how do I protect my kids. I know. From it's normal. It's yeah. normalized. Yeah. To say that stuff. So, so and where do you find your place in, in that? Granted, I don't have kids, but I feel like so for 14 years of my life, I was a, a swim teacher for kids kids. I worked with, you know, from six months all the way up to had a 73 year old in LA. Anyways, that's another story. Um, it's funny we're talking about this. So I had a girlfriend who owns a, a studio. I was taking her class one morning and she's like, Hey, can I like announce your, your podcast? She had, I had just interviewed one of my friends that she knew as well. And I'm like, please, yeah, share. I would love for you to. And her and I started talking after class and she has an eight-year-old son who was diagnosed with like ADD a couple of years ago, has been on medication and now dealing with anxiety. And she was telling me about, you know, I, I'm doing everything I can. And, you know, I, we we bring the playdates to our house so he's in a safe space and and all the boys are playing out back and he doesn't want to go. And I'm like, you got to go out there. Da, da, da. And I go, okay, he doesn't receive the way that you are dealing with his anxiety. It's different because you have to be able to associate with how other people process emotions. So I'm going to I'm going to tell you something right now. Next time this happens, tell him you love him. Tell him how much you love him and that it's actually okay to feel this way and it's totally normal. Because her reaction is to get pissed, right? He's not mm-hmm. like you're talking about. He's not going to eat the food and we just made all this food. It's like, that's your reaction as an adult, as the mother. I'm like, I I think just try this next time. If it doesn't work, we we, we didn't lose anything. Um, pull him aside. Tell him how much you love him. Tell him it's totally normal. Let's hang out in your bedroom for like five minutes and then let's try it again. And she's like, well, I never, I never thought of that. And it's like, Kids process emotions so much differently Mm -hmm. than we do. So I think the first thing they need to hear when they're dealing with anything is that A, I love you, and B, it's okay. Because what they're feeling is 
they're feeling so different and and so fucked up and like I'm a disappointment to my parent mm-hmm. and that creates more anxiety and now it's like this whole you know cyclical thing so that goes for adults too hey I see you I love you as a friend we're gonna get through this and sometimes you need someone to just commiserate with you and say this fucking sucks like what you're going through like I remember when you know I got let go and everything everyone's like oh you're gonna be great you're gonna find a job and like you're you have so many great qualities about you I'm like that doesn't help me right now what I needed to hear was yeah that fucking sucks and what you just went through is really traumatic and it's a big life change I mean I'm not married I don't have kids that was my that was the biggest thing in my life so let's pause for a second on that because I feel like people are very very uncomfortable with any kind of grief Mm -hmm. or any kind of consolation without what's the next thing what's the next thing what's the next thing how do we get how do we get through this how do we fix it yep and I'm guilty of that too. And that's very interesting and poignant of just sitting with somebody yes. and saying, yeah, I see sucks. you. I feel you. This fucking sucks. And right. that's what I was saying with my example about getting angry in the car um, when I would used to get road rage. So the steps that work for me, I don't push the emotion aside. I feel it. I sit with it. I let it suck. I let it make me sad. I let it make me angry but I don't carry it with me into the next thing. I think you're right. Everyone with any sort of emotion, we just kind of want to get through it. And like, how do we fix it? How do we fix Mm -hmm. it? How do we fix it? It's like, no, 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 let it happen. Be okay that it's happening because otherwise we just keep pushing it down and pushing it down. And one day is going to build up. It's going to explode. It's going to come out. It's going to come out. Whether you like it or not. And it's either going to come out and disease, disease. Yes. It's going to affect you. Anger anger or these these massacres that are happening i mean these yeah. kids of course that doesn't excuse anything but i guarantee you what they've been through that is there is substance there there is a reason this is happening i just i haven't seen the documentary yet but i'm i'm i want to watch it like this week the aaron hernandez i've heard documentary. i've heard i need to watch it i haven't seen again it doesn't excuse what he did he's obviously murdered people but when you hear about his story it's like this this kid has been through the ringer. Like, mm-hmm. how could you, uh, I, I couldn't even fathom going through all of that and, and being normal, right? So again, being able to acknowledge that the emotion is happening, acknowledge it, sit with it, and then take steps to change it and change you know, how you process it and change what happens next. I think that for me has been um, a roadmap to getting through what I've been through. So tell me about the response to your podcast because you hit, you touched on a nerve immediately. Yeah, yeah. It's been overwhelming, like honestly overwhelming and not just for me, but for my guests. They'll send me screenshots of people DMing them that they don't even know. And I'm like, isn't that so like, it just makes it all worth it, right? It makes Mm -hmm. everything that you've gone through okay to know that, it's resonating with other people or it's helping someone else. I went to the uh, UGA Auburn game in the fall and it was like probably six or seven weeks into my 11 episodes. And um, I had two girls. We're in the middle of Auburn. I've never been to Auburn, or Auburn, um, Alabama in my life. We're in the middle of Auburn and they're probably 24, 25. They come up to me and they're like, one of separately, one of the girls was like, hey, are you the girl with the podcast? And I'm like, 
me like yeah and i guess i am recognizable because i am so tall Mm -hmm. so i was like yeah i'm like she's like i just want you to know um my friends and i we we listen to it and we really enjoy it and even if you don't connect with the subject matter yourself like even if you cannot don't connect with exactly what my guest has gone through I guarantee you, you know, someone that has gone through it. So now you can understand the way your friend has dealt with that and you can show them compassion. So I use it as a tool for a, if you're going through it now, you can relate, you know, directly and b indirectly understanding that human beings are going through these things Mm -hmm. and hearing it from someone who has gone through it or is in it right now. And now having that grace and that compassion for a friend that might be dealing with it. Or maybe you can't identify what your friend's going through, but you're like, oh, well, this kind of makes sense. And and they get really angry with me about the weirdest stuff. And now it's like, it's not you. It's something that they're mm-hmm. going through. And then we start to understand each other. On my uh, Instagram page, every, every three posts, I now have like a little saying or like something I've thought of. <laughs> and one of them is actually from Sheldon. You know, he says, we're not fixing ourselves. We're understanding ourselves. Mm. And we're understanding other people. So it changes the way we communicate with other people once you understand them. Just like your son, you understand that you getting angry and, and yelling and forcing him to eat is not going to help the situation. Mm-hmm. It's not going to make, make him be like, oh, it may not stop me from yelling, but right. but, just saying. <laughs> but, you know, it's like if we, if we understand how other people relate, then we can relate to them. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that, the reason that I've been, put in this position is because I've been through so many circumstances with adults and children and teaching them how to do physical things that I've had to learn how to speak to people very differently. Like the way I talk to some of these trainers are very different than the way I talk to these trainers or it's different than the way I talk to kids in the pool. So being able to relate to people on different levels at different emotional stages has set me apart and set me up to do this work. Hmm. What do you know that you wish other people could know? That it's not that this life isn't. I remember when I drove across country and we stopped in Yellowstone and we pulled in the park and I looked around and I realized I am so insignificant in the world. Like this life really isn't such a big deal. Mm. And this is a really morbid thing to say, but hear me out we're all going down. We're all going to the same place. No one's getting out of here alive. And when we have such big expectations on life and such grandiose things and everything matters so much, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't. And for me, I remember when I was 15, 16, when this first all started, my parents said to me, what do you want? What do you want? I had a car, I had a boyfriend, I had a, I, all, the list that any 16-year-old could want. And I remember looking to, looking to them and just saying, I just want to be happy. So I have measured success in how happy I am on a day-to-day basis. So it's not about the car I drive or where I live or the shoes that I wear. Like I just don't care that much about all that stuff. For me, success is to wake up in the morning and actually want to be there and going to get emotional. Life is not, it's not such a fucking big, it's not a big deal. It's not. We come into this world alone and we're going out alone. 
And um, I remember when I lost a couple people in my life, I realized like death isn't scary. It's um, it's gonna happen. And there are people that have gone before me. I stopped wanting to kill myself because I realized that it's going to happen one way or another. And I don't need to speed that process up. But the amount of days left, I want to make sure that it's filled with joy and happiness because I've been unhappy for way too long. And uh, if I can do it, other people can do it. And it takes a really long time. It's It's a lot of time. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of being really honest with yourself. Mm. And, um, but if you are ready to do that work, you can do it. You just have to be ready and you have to do it for yourself and not because you're doing it for your spouse or your parents or whatever. But, um, yeah, if I were to say one thing that I know that maybe not everyone else is that it comes down to you, you're responsible for your life and that's it. That's so beautifully said. What's next for you? (laughs) I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm I don't up know. to this point. I'm doing okay. But tomorrow I might be yeah. fucked. Uh, who knows? Um, I really do want to start getting the podcast season two going again soon. You're welcome. Um, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to expand this. I want to expand this topic and this subject and take it to the masses. And I want to be the catalyst for it and, and the host for it and hold panels and hold discussions and hold you know, motivational events with different people. And I think one of the biggest assets that I have is I'm a people connector. Mm -hmm. I connect you with this person and let me help you here. So I want to be like the central point for people that need to hear and people that want to share. And um, that's why I want to, you know, host a, a bigger, broader show at some point that is on a national and international scale. And, you know, I have visions of like being in an auditorium with like a a panel of real experts, right? I'm not really an expert on anything, but having real people up there that have also been through some things and literally pulling people out of the audience and be like, what are you going through? Let's talk it out right here, right now. And just making it, I hate to say the word normalize it, or uh, making it okay, making it okay to talk about and not taboo and not shameful. And like I said, everyone has a fucking story. And if you've been through some shit, like it's not your fault. Mm. If if someone treated you a certain way growing up, or it, it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility to deal with it and handle it and make the most out of it and learning how to let stuff go that doesn't serve you. And it's really hard to, to do that without hearing how other people have done it. So that's that's the big step for Six Feet Above and beyond. And then, you know, obviously, uh, we're still working in fitness, keeping my pulse on, on that and working at STAT, which I love combining wellness in a very overall, and it's not just fitness. I'm part of the, or I am the director of the movement side, which is the physical side, but realizing it's everything that goes into your body, everything that you do with your body and, and everything that you're thinking. And for me, I always tell people there are three things to my pyramid. And if one of those things is off, my pyramid's going down. What I do with my body physically, that's why I love to work out. The way that I move my body is huge. Um, what I put into my body, right? How I fuel it. And then what goes on between my ears If those three things are healthy, then I'm a successful, happy person. And teaching people that it's not just one of those things, it's got to be all three going on at once. 
and just exploring that in, in, in the fitness field. And then, um, going back to flywheel. So I'm going to t- start teaching spinning again. I just passed the final ride today and building my fitness consulting business. I'm going to be traveling a little bit to other studios. I'm going to Ohio soon to help a studio out there, share my expertise in that boutique fitness world. When you, when you don't even know what's next, anything can happen, right? So I see visions. I just don't know exactly what that looks like or where I'm going to be. I just know it's exactly where I should be. I love that. (laughs) And I could see the community part. Yeah. Especially starting with the book club. Is that what you call it? Yeah. So coffee club. Coffee club. club. So I, I, I had only heard of small group when I moved to Atlanta. I didn't know what a small group was. In the church sense? Yes. In the church sense. When I lived in LA, no one was doing little meet and greet ups. Like everyone was in acting class. Like you didn't, (laughs) you didn't go and talk about your feelings. So, uh, I took the idea of a small Bible group and I said, let's replace the Bible with coffee and make it a coffee club. So once a month, I'm going to be hosting that probably towards like last year or last month, we did it the last uh, Friday of the month and have a topic every month that I will start with, you know, I'll start the conversation and then really having people be in a safe environment to be able to chime in and talk about what they're going through too, or not talk at all and just sit back and listen. So starting that, or I've started that. So hopefully we'll keep that going just once a month. And I see that growing into this like bigger Mm -hmm. community thing. You were telling me about the TEDx. Yes. So that is on my radar. Yes. I would love to do speaking events and engagements and really just opening it up to anyone that, that wants to listen. I love that. And we can, if anybody out there is listening and needs some speakers. Yes. Yeah. Let me know. Hit up Megan. Yeah. Uh, All of her information will be in the show notes. How can people find you? So you can find me on Instagram. That's the easiest way because I have a really uh, memorable name. I'm Megstagram11. (laughs) (laughs) Because 10 was taken. Yes. (laughs) There are 10 other Megstagrams. (laughs) Literally. No, 11 is my favorite number. It's been my favorite number forever. I do have a website coming. It's coming, coming, coming. MeganLeeArmstrong.com. And then where else to be? Six feet you? above. Six feet above. Well, yeah. Six feet above podcast on Spotify, Apple, you name it. All of it. All of it. All of it. And uh, season two is coming soon. Well, Megan, thank you so much for being here. You're this welcome. is a great conversation. You're welcome. <laughs> I think Megan is a breath of fresh air. And personally, what I was really impressed by is that she doesn't wrap her anxiety and depression and disorders she suffered in the past in a pretty bow and say everything is perfect now. So glad that's over because that is not reality. Life is messy and happiness is fleeting. But I love that she's embraced the journey and takes an active part in finding her own joy and helping others find a more balanced and well state. I've linked all of her info in the show notes. And if you're in Atlanta, I hope you'll join her for one of her upcoming coffee clubs. And as for Little Left of Center, I hope you'll stay connected with me. I'm about to explode with new content, new episodes, new round of Press Play podcasts, my launch program for new podcasters, new blog called Little Left Letter, and I've linked it all in the show notes. But above all, I hope you'll share these episodes culture changing only works when the ideas are shared. So please keep sharing. Thank you for listening and have a great week.